On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with legend Chris Chance of Fat Chance Bikes. Welcome to the weekly frame building podcast, the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast. My name is Joe. I own and run Cobra Frame Building Tooling, but I also produce this podcast every week. Over the last 23 weeks, or this is the 23rd episode, uh, every week I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. We have a pretty conversational chat for about an hour about what their experience is like and how they got up to speed, how they learned, uh, you know, the the advice they have for other people and that sort of thing. And most of my guests have been people who are newer to frame building, relatively speaking, within the last five or ten or fifteen years. Some people more like twenty or twenty-five years. I even had Stephen Belinky who started building bikes in the eighties. But this week I have Chris Chance, and I'm so stoked about that because not only has he been building bikes since the mid seventies. But uh, he started Fat City Cycles in Boston in 1982, and that company is legendary. The bikes that they made are so legendary. Uh, you know the the Yo Eddie and the Wicked and the you know the Fat and the Slim Chance and all these different bikes that they made through the 80s and 90s uh, were remarkable. Not to mention also the roster of people who worked at Fat City Cycles and then went on to start other really cool and impactful uh, cycling-related companies is huge. Uh, Ron from King Cage, Jeff from Sputnik Tool, Gary Helfrich, who went on to do stuff with UBI and Merlin. You have uh, IndyFab and Seven Cycles, and there's like a ton of them. Uh, So many cool companies that that all kind of were like stewing and growing out of Fat City Cycles. Uh, Chris Chance started that company and uh, did a, a lot of really cool work and made a brand that people were really excited about and then took a, a hiatus from the bike world for like 15 years and people were like, where did he go? What happened? And then he came back on the scene a few years ago. I met him in 2015 at the Louisville NABS show, North American Handmade Bike Show, uh, and I got to meet him, which was crazy, uh, but it turns out he's a really down-to-earth guy, and I just sat on the stool in his booth, and we talked for like 20 minutes, and I felt really lucky to, to meet someone. Again, I, I say that a lot on this show, but you got to go to the trade shows if you like uh, the bike frame building world, because that's where you meet these people. And so I, I got to know him a little bit then, and I saw him uh, at the Philly Bike Expo and different shows over the years, and, um, and when I was at the Philly Bike Expo this year, I asked him to be on the show, and he said, sure, I'd love to, and so now we got him on the show. He relaunched uh, Fat Chance Bikes, is what it's called now, a couple years ago, and so he's been building that up again. Uh, it's really cool to hear the details of that, to hear his story, and you know why he wanted to come back into it, and all these different things. And I think what's really cool is that in the year 2019, you can buy a handmade bike from Chris Chance again, and it has like the mountain bikes he makes have a lot of the really cool details and aesthetics of the old bikes that I thought were cool for years and years. I thought the old, uh, you know, like fat chance bikes were really cool. You can buy one now that's actually like a contemporary mountain bike or they have other bikes too, not just mountain bikes, but you can buy a contemporary one, uh, with like actually like disc brakes and really good components and stuff. That's not uh, dangerous or complicated or, 
challenging to ride in the woods over rocks and stuff, uh, which is really cool. And it's made by Chris Chance. Uh, I really want one of these bikes. Um, I'm not in a position to be buying custom bikes right now, but man, I want one. So anyway, I think it's really cool to, to see someone like him uh, be so integrated in, in the frame building and you know custom bike world for so long, or I guess almost more production bike world. Anyhow, uh, we get into all that. And so where we cut into the interview here, I had asked him to sort of start at the start and tell us about the history of how he got uh, started making bikes. You know, I was just, uh, from, from pretty early on, I was really passionate about bikes and uh, got into early on. I mean, I, you know, I started out as a kid. I, my first bike was uh, uh, a bike I bought for $7, had solid rubber tires, 24-inch wheels. I forget how old I was. I was like eight years old or something, and I saved up money to, to buy it. And um, it had been run over, backed over by somebody. Uh, and uh, I never rode straight. I, I often think maybe that's why I'm so passionate about alignment, because I rode this, this bike everywhere when I was a kid. When I was a little bit older, I um, I rode it. I remember I'd go on these long jaunts. I forget how many miles it was, like 12 miles or something. And on a solid rubber, 24-inch wheel bike, wow. single speed, it was a lot. And I'd go buy firecrackers, which was really exciting for me, <laughs> being a little renegade. So <laughs> I'd throw them in my basket and ride home. So uh, I got, uh, yeah, in late high school, I got back into bikes. You know, I took a break. You know, I, I used to ride a lot as a kid and then took a break. And then in my, what, my mid-teenage years, I uh, I got into racing and um, knew Richard Sachs and Peter Weigel. They were the first ones at uh, Wickham, USA. They actually went over to England to learn the trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had one of the guys working in the shop and decided they needed somebody else. And uh, they gave you an interview and I um, said, you know, I'm really into bikes and I love to work with my hands and they ended up saying you're hired. So there wasn't any qualifications or experience that I had. I was what, uh, 20 years old or something. I've been uh, welding, uh, doing stick welding at uh, Electric Boat in Groton, Connecticut, which was just something you could learn how to do there. And, and um, I was intrigued by that. So I, uh, I got pretty good at welding in the several months that I worked there, mm-hmm. but I was glad to leave. And this opportunity was one that really excited me. So this would so, have been uh, like 72 or pretty early in the seventies, right? No, 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 it was, it was, uh, actually 75, 75. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I learned, um, all the basics of frame building there. I actually started out, uh, doing painting. I mean, I was doing what at first I was prepping frames for shipping and, Zooming head tubes and um, tapping bottom brackets, that kind of thing. And um, we were painting with Imran, which is these nasty chemicals. Uh, mm-hmm. And Peter Wagel was the painter when I got there, and he started having a reaction to it. Uh, so I stepped in and uh, learned how to paint, which was an interesting experience because I have these very uh, perfectionistic tendencies, and I, I was determined to make sure every time I laid a coat of paint on that it was going to be full gloss and uh painting a bike is pretty tricky in that you're you've got a very complicated surface with all these tubes coming together yeah and you're spraying a liquid on a liquid on and you want it to just flow out and um be all perfect and glossy yeah and um i in the early days of doing that i uh would say okay that looks good and i'd leave the spray booth spray booth to let it uh tack up 
and I'd come back and the paint would literally be dripping onto the floor off the frame. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I, you know, I had to make all those mistakes a bunch of times and, and, uh, after enough practice, I got, so I could go in there and, you know, hose them down and, and they'd come out all perfect. And that's awesome. Really, uh, it was gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. Paint is hard. So, the little uh, bit that I've done on bikes, yeah. you know, you have all these, the junctions and then the overspray right. is always an issue. I worked for cabinet makers yeah. and, and it, I was trying to mm. do a good job on cabinets and there's a couple tricks, but right. there's these generally it's right. big, broad surfaces and you have inside corners are kind of hard because yeah. the, but like it, a bike right. is very difficult. Yeah. It's, it's a complicated shape to get all that liquid just smoothed out. On yeah. That. But you know, with practice you, and a good gun, you, you learn mm-hmm. how to do it. Did you have yeah. that much safety yeah. equipment? Like, uh, the, the um the charcoal filter masks and stuff or what was the safety uh, like started out with that and yeah and eventually got into uh air supply oh cool so okay that, you know which is they call that positive pressure right where you're yeah you have an air supply coming into the max so where if there's any gaps there's air coming out so you're not sucking anything in so yeah that's definitely the preferred way to go yeah so what do you do after you had learned to paint yeah so then uh i just you know, step through the rest of the processes. Uh, I ended up working there almost two years and, you know, learn brazing and, of course, uh, fit up and mitering and check and alignment. And uh, when I first got there, there wasn't a whole lot of tooling and um, they started investing more in tooling. We got some nice jigs while I was there, frame jigs and mm-hmm. uh, fork jig. I think that, yeah. It's a long time ago, so I don't have all the details so straight. Basically, but, uh, Whitcomb was, was yeah. uh, an English frame building company, and they decided to set up a production yeah. facility in like Connecticut, and and then they had a couple employees, and it was you, Richard Sachs, Peter Weigel, in the beginning. Uh, actually, it was uh, one of the guy that was hired before me, Gary Sinkus, and um, he was there. I think he was mostly building forks, as I recollect, mm-hmm. and I was their fourth hire in the shop. Uh, my understanding was that. Uh, there was um his last name escapes me ed allen uh who owned the company and he had been importing whitcomb of england frames Mm -hmm. and uh decided that uh he wanted to it was his his company and as far as i know his decision to start making frames there in connecticut uh and thought the whitcomb brand would be a you know a good foundation to do that from yeah you know because people knew it Mm-hmm. So uh, we, you know, we were working for a company called Whitcomb USA, but it, it was just uh, the fact that Peter and Richard had been trained there, and um, there was a connection of importing those bikes before. So yeah, that was that's the way that worked out. Mm-hmm. And so you did that for a couple of years, and then you went on your own yeah. to do Chris Chance cycles before doing Fat City cycles. And what? When did you decide to do Fat yeah. uh, or <laughs> Chris Chance cycles? Yeah. Yeah, so um actually uh moved up to Boston and uh a few months later uh I was working for a frame building shop up in Boston and a few months later I heard about Whitcomb going out of business and that they were selling their equipment and that just totally lit me up. I was on fire, like, okay, I gotta get down there and buy a frame jig and they had two frame jigs and uh Peter got one and, and uh I got the other and some other tools. And I frankly didn't really know what I was going to do with them. I just knew I had to have them. There was just no doubt in my mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't really have a plan. And I got back to Boston and just figured, well, I'll stick them in the garage for a while and we'll see what happens. 
And uh, so I was working for this frame building shop uh, in Cambridge and uh, the owner um, had been in a car accident and had to go in for some surgery. And um, so I was actually the only one in the shop for a while and I was holding down the fort and building some bikes. And I mentioned to some people coming in uh, that I had this equipment. I didn't really know what I was going to do with it, but here it is. And I'm all excited. And, I had three people that said, oh, well, if you go into business, I'll give you an order. So before I even knew I was going to be in business, I had three orders. Mm-hmm. So it felt like, okay, I got to pay attention to that. <laughs> that was really a, a big impetus, you know? Yeah. And then there's a, a guy who was doing frame building um, in a basement uh, kind of between Harvard and MIT. And uh, he had plenty of room and the rent was really cheap. And uh, I think we spent we had like a thousand square feet and it came with compressed air and electricity and wow. we were paying $75 a month rent that we split. Nice. And it wasn't the greatest space, but, uh, it was, you know, perfect for me getting started. I, I, uh, spent a lot of, a lot of long hours in there. I just remember, especially in the early days, I'd be like, Oh man, I got to get to sleep so I can wake up and do this all over again. You know, I just hop into bed and, and just be so excited to bounce out of bed in the morning and get to work and wow. do my thing. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And so that was when you were building. That was before Fat City. You were you were doing your own exactly, thing after yeah. hours while yeah. you were also working in this other shop. No, no, I went in. I went in full time to that. Okay. Uh, I you know I had my three orders. Uh, we had a paint booth in there. I was doing repaints and repairs on frames. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I, I was I was plenty busy. And these were all road bikes, uh, or or this yeah. was before yeah. you found out about or started building mountain bikes. Yeah, yeah, that didn't happen till '82. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, if I could jump ahead on um, and just talk about how yeah. my passion uh, in doing Christian cycles was, you know, many faceted. But I was very into, uh, you know, quality of how I can put everything together: the fit up, the um, the finish work, the uh, the design. I spent. Um, a lot of time with my customers where I'd um, measure up all their body dimensions. I'd put them on the bike, check out their fit on the bike, make some recommendations and uh, measure up the geometry on the bike they were riding. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I go for a ride with them and I could get um, a sense of what their experience was on their bike because I had measured the geometry. And back in those days, uh, 99% of the bikes were made out of steel and they'd have a sticker on them. You have a really good idea of the tubing weights and what the bike was made from mm-hmm. and, uh, in terms of, you know, wall thicknesses, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so knowing what their, uh, their geometry was and having a sense of how it handled because of my, you know, understanding of geometry, I, uh, I would then talk to them about what they wanted me to build them. And I could, you know, take in this input of like, well, I want it, you know, stiff and responsive. And I'd ask them questions like, okay, uh, how do you want it to feel after a long ride? How do you want it to uh, climb or go around corners and, and descend? And, um, and, and back in those days, we were building really specific use bikes. So like, you know, a, a time trial bike or a criterion bike or a long distance road bike or a touring bike that was all you know, bike packing or, um, sag wagoned. And so I took all these, um, these types of bikes and, and input from my customers and, uh, you 
know, armed with their reference uh, of what they wanted, I had um, a sense of how the bike rode and and how to, in a sense, make adjustments to that from where they were to where they wanted to go uh, geometry wise. Mm -hmm. So, you know, angles and and lengths and fit and uh, tubing weights and different manufacturers had different tapers on the stays and diameters on the stays. So you could uh, fine tune the rear end handling a little bit that way. Mm -hmm. And so I got really good at delivering what it was the customer wanted. You know, they, they'd use these terms that I think of as soft from an Mm -hmm. engineering standpoint of like, Oh, I want it comfortable or I want it, uh, you know, to accelerate really well and I want it to feel stiff Mm-hmm. And you know, stiff is is a relative term, right? But I had the I had the measurement of what their chain stays were and what their bottom bracket drop was, and um, you know, just got really good at at uh, dialing that in for exactly what the customers wanted, and that gave me a really good sense of okay, what do I do to make a bike climb well or feel stable in descents or uh, you know, accelerate out of a, a turn, and. Uh, for me, that was really exciting. And I, and I, I got to a place where, um, I felt like I, I owned that, you know, I can do, I can do this really well. Uh, and so getting into mountain biking, you know, I, I felt like I, I could just, uh, actually throw in a loop here. So I'd done a lot of, uh, things to dress up bikes, you know, as a painter, so I could do fun paint jobs. And, um, I was doing uh, a lot of star cutouts. That was kind of my cutout theme and, and some mm-hmm. other cutouts and lugs. Uh, really spent a lot of time finished filing on, on frames. So they looked really as beautiful and sculpted as I could. And mm-hmm. then, uh, then I, um, you know, like to dress them up even more. I did sterling silver head badges that uh, a jeweler would uh, make for me. And I'd cut out sterling silver stars and put them on the crown and uh, just did all this, you know, stuff that I thought was really fun. Yeah. And yeah. And so, um, I felt like I was ready for something new and along came mountain bikes and I just, you know, really got excited about them. It's just those early days of mountain biking were just all about exploring, which is for me, just like a really important part of a bike. You know, that feeling of like you're a kid again and the world just expanded from being on foot. You can now ride your bike and go all these cool places and explore. And, uh, I just love that feeling that, that kid like feeling of, um, exploring the world mm-hmm. and uh mountain bikes were just like a whole nother level of that you could go just amazing places and uh feel the fitness of your body and be out in nature and uh take in some amazing sights and uh go places that would take you you know a long time to hike into and and uh it's all about like wow what can these bikes do and how do we make them better and mm-hmm. as a frame designer <clears throat> i got really excited about this, uh, you know, as I was saying before, that road bikes are usually really single purpose, you know, like a criterion bike does not do well in touring, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people may be using that way, but, uh, they're, they're designed for a specific thing. Yeah. And for me, a mountain bike was all about like, wow, you know, how can I make one bike do everything really well without compromising? And so with all my experience in frame design, I just, really, you know, took a look at at what I saw that was out there and made my own modifications, uh, and just started riding and trying out different things. And, 
you know, just finding out how can I make this bike never hold you back? That was kind of my, my mission. It's like, I never want to be in a situation in a mountain bike where you've, you know, and this is of course early days and the technology is not what it is today. Yeah. We had no suspension, you know, front or rear. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had, um, you know, gears that worked pretty well. But, uh, and we had cantilever brakes and, uh, you know, bikes have come a long, long way since then. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and with what we had to work with, I just wanted, wanted a bike that just said yes. You mm-hmm. know, that this is another whole thing of, um, especially with mountain bikes for me, is what's your relationship with your bike? Mm-hmm. Does your bike support you in, in meeting your, your dreams or your, your ideas about, you know, what can happen on a ride? Mm-hmm. You know, what, how, how can you experience that never being held back? Yeah. How can you relate, relate to your bike with, you know, full trust that it's there for you and, and yeah. you can do whatever you want with it? And mountain and biking was sort of like began as more of a West Coast phenomenon, like, like Marin County, California, yeah. right? As like the birthplace of it. And so when you had first seen mountain bikes and you first started producing them, you were one of the first people on the East Coast to engage in building mountain bikes, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and the riding yeah. is very different on the East Coast. And so uh, mm-hmm. that was what uh, some my friend Andy was, was telling me was that a big significant uh, component of what you were bringing to mountain bikes when you got started was that uh, your bikes were really uh, better for riding the sort of New England rocky sort of, you know, n- not as much about descending. And you know, it's a different uh, landscape, right? And so, like, you had a different perspective about what you wanted to bring to the bikes. And then you also had this experience mm-hmm. for, like, a decade of building road bikes uh, yeah. and tailoring those into yeah. to people's needs. So how did that, like, when you were trying to apply what you knew about bikes already to this different riding style that bikes, these mountain bikes weren't designed for, like, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so... Um it's just more of the same story. You know, it's like we had our places that we rode and uh, we're just looking to have a bike get dialed in for what we were riding. So, you know, taking my experience in um, what do I do to make a bike climb better or descend better or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, do the turning that I want it to do. And um, it's just a matter of uh, some trial and error and and a lot of expertise, you know, just Mm kind of having a gut feel of, what needed to happen um to uh to bring it all together yeah and uh you know in the early days um <clears throat> for the length of stays we needed there wasn't anything available uh in a normal bike tube so we used straight gauge tubing on the the seat stays and chain stays mm-hmm. well it turned out that uh that was a better way to have control over the rear wheel that that um you know, your, your wheel gets bounced around a lot, uh, you know, hitting rocks and roots and whatever. And, uh, so even when paper tubing became available, we just stuck with, uh, with the straight diameters and it, it just gives you a better connection. Like one of the ways I like to explain it is if you're, um, if you're going down a hill at 20 miles an hour and you're bouncing around, you're covering like 30 feet a second. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of ground to cover. And so you're focused on where your front wheel's pointed and, you know, keeping the rubber side down, of course, keeping your balance. Uh, and you're focused somewhat on where the rear wheel is, but sometimes, you know, they get bounced around and, and uh, you need that feedback from the rear wheel through the chain stays, to, through your cranks, to your pedals, 
to feel what the bike is doing and what you need to do to, to correct that. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that happens really subconsciously. You know, your, your brain just kind of works that. How do I keep myself upright uh, when my bike is bouncing around? And so having, you know, this is a whole other aspect of riding a bike is having a feel for what the bike is doing uh, through your, your contact points and through your, your proprioception, actually. Uh, it's just another layer of um, design that the, the frame designer needs to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how does the bike really feel to you with that input that's, that's you know, maybe subtle for your conscious mind to not feel, but, uh, you know, how does the subconscious or the, you know, sort of the body intelligence mm-hmm. uh, deal with that info? So, uh, you know, you were talking before about how, and especially in early years, we were recognized as a, uh, <clears throat> a builder and, and uh, coming up with designs that worked really well on the East Coast. And, and I remember early on, um, you know, it took us a while to get into the West Coast market. Uh, I remember hearing a dealer say, well, you know, why would I sell a bike from the East Coast? That's like trying to sell a surfboard made in Oklahoma, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You know, we we got um, we got a lot of dealers behind us over the years and sold a lot of bikes out west. Uh, we had a reputation for building really good handling bikes. Um, you know, especially with the OED, but also the Wicked. Mm-hmm. I uh, I remember Zap Espinosa. Um, I'm trying to remember when this was. This is I think we we had stopped building the Wicked as a model, so it would have been like early to mid '90s. Where he had he was out, you know, Zap Espinosa, he was like the editor from Mountain Bike Action magazine that was um, so popular, especially in those early years of mountain biking. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, he was test riding some bike and bumped into somebody that wanted to test ride it. And he said, "Yeah, sure, take it for a ride." And it turned out the guy that was wanting to test ride this bike was riding a Wicked, and so Zap got on this guy's Wicked and rode it. And and the reason he that I heard about this story is he said man, that was just the sweetest riding bike. You know, he was just so appreciative of uh, how it handled. And that's a bike we designed back in 87. Wow. And yeah. And, uh, and you know, if anybody defines West Coast, uh, I mean, he's an editor, right? And they have to put stuff in magazines that people want to read. But uh, he was way into the West Coast feel of, of bikes. And, and uh, you know, the OEDI was a, a hugely popular model for us and uh it was appreciated all over the world you know really we got um just a lot of magazine reviews like um i forget the exact wording but mountain bike action said uh you know something to the effect of uh, a new standard has, has been set and how a bike should ride i mean you can't really do any better than that as a bike designer builder yeah yeah and that's so an that exciting time too you know, back in, yeah. in the, in the mountain bike boom, uh, cause I feel like it's more of like a newer frontier or something. And so, you know, there's, I feel like there's huge gains to be made because in the beginning, you know, they're relatively crude instruments that people are trying mm-hmm. to just, you know, bring some, develop something they can get out and ride on. And so there's a lot of improvements yeah. to be made and there's still always a lot of improvements yeah. to be made, but you know, like for me coming into the, the bike handmade bike world in the, you know, around 2010 and through the 20 teens or whatever, 
mm-hmm. you know, there's just yeah. so much information and there's so many talented people who've been doing it and there's yeah. a lot of communication on the internet. And so it's, it's harder to find mm-hmm. these like big opportunities for innovation in the same kind of way. Yeah. And, and yet a lot of yeah. things are easier for me too, but like, it's, it's cool to think about what it would have been like like in the eighties and the mountain mm-hmm. bike boom to be developing stuff where it's a little bit more of a clean slate. And like, there's a lot more, um, discovery to be done about like, you know, trying totally new ideas that hadn't been tried before and, uh, you know, going yeah. in directions. Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, a really exciting time that way. And that, that people are, uh, are, there's so many people doing it and, and so many people trying different things and, you know, I I am I've always been a great appreciator of being able to stand on the shoulders of all the people that have come before us doing things, and and uh, yeah, it's really um, yeah. I I just want to say it's really exciting to see all the stuff that's going on now, and and yeah. Well, and you had I, a hiatus. I think we'll look back at this. Is, yeah, yeah. You had a hiatus from the bike world, and now you come back and. Uh, you know, you have this legacy of all these decades that you were involved, but now you're coming back again. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's gotta be a, a totally different feel now, right? Like the project must have a different feel to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm still who I am. Uh, <laughs> and I've, I've grown a lot for sure. Um, but yeah, the industry has changed immensely. Uh, and that was, that was a big adaptation. But I have been really pleased uh, to hear back from my customers. You know, I have many customers that have, <clears throat> say, a Yoetti from the '90s and and uh, and a new one. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I did I did a lot of research and talking to people and and checking things out. And um, you know, a lot of my customers, at least you know the ones that I hear from, anyways. I don't know. You know, I send a bike off when I was here from the customer, but. The ones that um, that I've heard from are saying that they like how the new Yoetti handles better. You know, the new, yeah, the way people are are riding now on on a trail. It's uh, there's a lot of different kind of demands being placed on the bike, and of course, longer travel forks and better brakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that the you know, I, I did a, a job of collecting all that I could from the old design and merging that with what was needed for a new bike and. Uh, people are, are real happy with how that all came together. So that's really gratifying. Yeah. Well, I think also at the core yeah. of it, and you know, this is my, my understanding. I'm curious of your thoughts, you know, but like, I feel like in order to be a good bike designer, you have to be able to like, listen to, you know, who your customer is and assess mm-hmm. what it is they're actually interested in. Or like you were saying, people would give you yeah. like soft descriptions of what they wanted. And then right. you have to translate yeah. that you being the practitioner and the sort of engineer, you have to be able yeah. to turn that into, okay, what actual geometry and what actual tubing and yeah. how am I going to actualize this and turn it into something that, that my customer who doesn't need to be an expert on frame design isn't an expert on frame design or fabrication. And so like, I feel like a lot of that is like listening and those sorts of things. And I think that's probably a credit or, you know, you wouldn't have been so successful with fat city cycles if Mm -hmm. you hadn't been able to, to do that sort of people's skills, like working with helping identify what it is people are after. And so whether or not, you know, the, the parts you put on the bike are different now and, and mountain biking has come a long way, but that basic, ability to listen and interact with your customer, I would think is at the heart of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's what I was talking about before is what I, what I brought to the mountain bike design is, is this ability to, uh, 
yeah, listen to those soft numbers, translate those into, I'm sorry, soft wording and descriptions and translate those into hard numbers so that the customer could then have the experience that he had described to me. Yeah. So yeah, that is, that is a lot of listening and, um, and yeah, I've been told I'm a good listener. so (laughs) That's been to my credit. And, uh, and also just, you know, what are all the different ways that you can um, work with the different facets of a bike and a customer's experience of a facet of a bike and, and add something to that, you know, like we're into the fun names and the fun graphics and the fun paint jobs and uh, fun ads that we used to do. And yeah, yeah, like, you know, and then like the fat cogs, right. Uh, We were having this meeting one day talking about how, uh, you know, Harley Davidson has customers that are so hardcore, right? Mm-hmm. Remember those t-shirts? Uh, there was uh, some years when uh, Harley Davidson Davidson motorcycles were built with not the best quality. And, and um, I remember seeing all these t-shirts of people saying, yeah, I'd rather uh, ride a Harley than push, than, than, uh, I'd rather push my Harley than ride a rice burner. <laughs> this is back in the early seventies or something, you know, uh-huh. so just hardcore, you know, it's like, they're just really owning the brand. And, uh, so it came to me that like, we need to do something like that. And, and boom, it hit me. We could be the fat cogs and, and Harley had a owner's group called the, called the hogs, the H O G S Harley owner's group. And, uh, so my idea was we come, we become the fat cogs. So the fat chance owner's group. That's awesome. And that was, uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun to get connected with our customers that way. We, we had a lot of people sending in photos of their Yoweti tattoo. There's been wow. a bunch of people that have made that. I know it's, I, I'm, I'm so impressed with that. That's awesome. I want to, yeah. I want to know the history of the Yoweti. I mean, first of all, the name is interesting to me. I'm curious about that. And then especially the segmented fork. And maybe the whole bike model, yeah. but like, what's the story with the name? And then I'd love to hear the history of the fork. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, I wish I had like a, a really great story for the name, but uh, Yoeti came about uh, with Mike Papa Constantine and, and Bob Folk, uh, two creative guys that did a lot of graphic works and creative stuff for us uh, that were in the frame shop. Uh, they were doing finished work on bikes and brazons and stuff. And uh, they're just a couple of really creative guys and they're standing around after work. And, and um, Mike, who was, he did a lot of those uh, stickmen and, and graphic designs for us, was just kind of doodling while they were talking and laughing. And um, he looked down at the page and said, wow, what's this? And uh, Bob was looking at it going, wow, that's really cool. And, uh, they next day they started showing it to people in the shop and everybody was just really fired up about it. And frankly, my, uh, my first response was like, I don't know, are people going to relate to that? And everybody <laughs> in the shop was like, yeah. And, and, uh, so finally I got convinced, uh, thankfully. And, um, and it just kind of got a life of its own, you know, people just seemed to really relate to it. Mm-hmm. But the name was just something that came out of, I guess, Mike's mouth. Like, uh, and there was some connection, I guess, to uh, the movie Rocky, where uh, Sylvester Stallone says "yo" a lot in the movie. Uh, and I think, you know, there's been some people that said, "Oh, is it is it Eddie Merckx?" You know, and because uh, he was riding back in those days. But um, 
there's never been any connection to that that uh, anybody fessed up to me. It's just you know the name Eddie is what came, and the yo went in front of it, and mm-hmm. and that's what stuck. Oh, I see. So uh, yeah, yeah. Now the so the fork. Yeah. I mean, I think of the yo Eddie fork as the segmented, you know, the five tube segmented fork. Mm-hmm. Um, is yeah. was that the the yo Eddie was the first model that you had that fork on? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so what was the we story were, with um, that? <clears throat> yeah. So we had the Wicked, which was, you know, our, our most successful bike. Um, we were developing the Yoetti in 88-89 and just knew that we needed to come up with something that was uh, bold and new and um, different. You know, we needed to, you know, everybody in the shop, whatever, everybody that rode and was into riding, it's like, you're never going to make anything better than the Wicked. It's, you know, it's it's just such a great bike. And, uh, I wasn't willing to accept that. And I, uh, I did a trip around, uh, the West coast and, um, you know, saw what people were riding and visited a few frame builders and saw what they were up to. And, um, just kind of, I don't know what, just, uh, kind of took it in, you know, it was when tubing diameters were increasing. Uh, for the first time, really. I mean, when we first started making mountain bikes, of course, the tubing diameters were bigger than what a road bike was, but they mm-hmm. were starting to uh, going bigger, and um, you know, tubing manufacturers were offering bigger diameter tubes. So we did that, and um, I knew I wanted to shorten the chain stays a little bit and um, shorten the fork rake. And um, we wanted something that was just really bold to go on the front of the bike, and uh, We've been kicking around a bunch of ideas and someone says, you know, we really got to do this, this design with the five tubes. And, um, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't feel like the engineering of it's going to work. It's going to be a lot of stress. Con- I just knew intuitively it's going to be a lot of stress concentration at the top of the blade and that, um, you know, forks or something that need a, a good failure mode. You can't have them yeah. um, buckling too quickly or, or, you know, cracking or failing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in sudden ways, and um, did you have a lot of Unicrown just, yeah. forks prior to that? Yeah, Unicrown, and their other fork was the Box Crown. Okay. So we took a, a section of uh, square tubing and um, hole sawed it and fit blades up to it and welded them and smoothed them around. And gotcha. Uh, they were they were a nice looking forks. Yeah, I've seen uh, those. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah, they were a lot of work. Um. So, so. You know, and talking to guys uh, that were promoting this five-tube design, uh, I'm like, no, I'm just really not thinking that it's going to be, we're going to come up with a way to to make it strong enough, you know, to deal with all that stress at the top of the fork legs. And so they just took upon themselves, you know, without telling me that they're to build one and, you know, just say, look, this is going to look really cool. You need to figure this out. I was like, oh yeah, God, that does look good. And so <laughs> I, I love the way they look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy with how they look too. And, and it was just another thing where the employees were saying, you know, you got to pay attention to this, you know, like the Yoetti and the, and this fork. And so thankfully uh, I listened and, and um, got to work on what does the design need to, to be strong enough. And uh, so I uh, came up with, I was working with a guy who, um, would do uh, ultimate and fatigue testing mm-hmm. just so people know ultimate testing is like what happens when you take a really big hit and that 
fails to fork. And the other testing we do is how does it last over a bunch of cycles um, of stress? You know, uh, take a, a lower load than the ultimate load and, and um, work that into the fork for many, many repetitions. And, and what's the failure mode that way? Mm-hmm. So this is really, really important work, especially on a fork. Yeah, especially in production, to too, be. if you're going to make a ton of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, you know, the first uh, year, two, three years, maybe we built that fork. Uh, we used inch and eighth blades, which, um, you know, make a super stiff fork. Very precise handling. Um and I call them blades. They're round, so I don't know why. You know, that's yeah. kind of... You used to call them blades when they were road bike, oval <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm baiting myself. Anyway, so um, it made a, a really rigid fork. And so uh, for 92, which our, which was our 10th year in business, um, we came out with our 10th anniversary model, which was a heat-treated lighter version of the Yoeti with these fancy 17.4 dropouts and uh, which is a kind of stainless. It's super strong, like mm-hmm. almost 200,000 pounds potential strength. Um, so that was something we were just, you know, wanting to make lighter. And, and so we came up with a design uh, with a one inch diameter tube. We called it the big one inch because um, I think we were the big one inch. I think the big one inch came later, actually, when it was suspension corrected. For 92, we weren't doing suspension corrected on that model. So mm-hmm. uh, we came out with a one-inch version, which was a lot more supple and, um, you know, didn't have that big beefy look, but it was a lot lighter and, and uh, had a little more give to it, mm-hmm. which I was appreciated. And we're, we're still to today building a version of that. Wow. And uh, the thing that, that got us to, um, you know, deal with the stress with this uh this one uh, friend of mine came up with uh, the tiers of a crown, which are like these upside down laser cut uh, chromoly teardrops, which we silver soldered on uh, where the stress was concentrated and it helped just distribute the stress and mm-hmm. give the fork a lot more strength. And so you, you and developed, with, uh, yeah. I was just going to say, and now with, uh, um, uh, you know, when you had cantilever brakes, um, it's not as stressful on the, on the fork. Uh, they don't break as well as a disc, uh, but the disc being lower down near the dropouts puts a lot more leverage on that, on the fork. So we put the teardrops front and rear to, um, to deal with, you know, mostly without, with cantilevers, we're dealing with really hard landings that put stress on the fork, but with the cantilevers, there's a lot of backward flexing. And so we, those teardrops front and rear now, and it, uh, makes an awesome fork. So the you the the silver soldered um, or silver brazing doesn't bring it to a temperature that really decreases the strength of the tube, but then having that extra thickness, uh, that extra piece brazed yeah. on, just gives it a yeah. more strength through that. Yeah. See, that's the kind of thing that exactly. like, um, you know, like my dad is a farmer, right? So when they would mm-hmm. build themselves a piece of equipment in their in their farm shop with MIG welders and stuff they didn't want to be fixing mm-hmm. it all the time and they had no idea what the failure mode right. was. So they just, they just get heavier material. It didn't cost that much more. Well, sure. on a bicycle, yeah. you don't always want to overbuild stuff. Yeah. And in production, there can be a cost associated to material 
depending on you know the nature mm-hmm. of it maybe not always yeah. with bike tubing but anyway like you know that when you're doing production and you're trying to make a high-end product you don't want to just overbuild it you want it to be just right and that becomes kind of critical and you know the way that i would yeah. design stuff i would just always try and give it a little bit of you know wiggle room so that i wasn't i wasn't up against it but you know for you doing mm-hmm. those uh those cyclic fatigue tests and ultimate failure uh tests yeah. would be really critical yeah yeah it's, it's important <laughs> yeah really important yeah. Um, yeah. So you were an early adopter of TIG welding, and I don't know when that mm-hmm. started or how you learned about that in the context of making bikes. But I, you know, as I understand it, not anybody was hardly anybody was TIG welding bikes, you know, prior to 1980. Uh, and I know you guys started that. Uh, wh- I mean, how did you find out about it, and why did you decide to lean into it? And then were there like marketing and other challenges associated with using this new construction method that people were unfamiliar with? Yeah. Um, well, a few things. Uh, one is I'd already learned a lot about welding. You know, it was uh, stick welding, but it the concept of joining metal through melting them and, and uh, making a strong joint was, you know, at least something I had experienced and, um, you know, nothing in the bike world, but I, I was very comfortable with the concept mm-hmm. having been a welder. And, um, you know, looking at BMX bikes, those things get really trashed. They get, you know, really ridden hard and, um, they're all TIG welded. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Gary Helfrich came on the scene, um, I don't know, in the fall of 82 and, and, uh, he was a TIG welder and, um, starting in, uh, he was, uh, he was busy with stuff, um, until, forget maybe february of 83 so when he came back into town um we started doing tig welding and and uh you know the first bunch of bikes we made were were all brazed and uh it's it takes a lot longer to braze and finish file uh a bike than it does to just get it tig welded yeah and so uh we also discovered that we only added like 30 grams of steel to join all the tubes together and uh just gave us a lot of confidence that um we could build these bikes and go out and test ride them and and that they hold up well yeah uh you were philip brazing the first fat city bikes yeah 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 because lug construction for mountain bikes is not really going to (laughs) happen not without getting a bunch of custom lugs made yeah exactly and there weren't any available for those sizes in, in the early days yep you know, that was something that didn't exist. And, and, uh, you know, investment cast lugs were, yeah, I guess, uh, they had, they were on the scene in the what late seventies or something, but, um, we were, we weren't seeing anything that was available then. And, and frankly, it's not something that we wanted to do was yeah. um, to go lugged. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, once I, Gary and I were talking, you know, and let me think we built, uh, the first fat city bike in like August of, uh, 82. And so during the fall we built the first year, we built, I think a total of like 13 bikes. Um, you know, I was tapering off the Christian cycles work and, um, and still doing, uh, some, you know, some road bikes, but, uh, come 83, we got, you know, a lot more focused on doing the mountain bikes and, and, uh, welding and just, became the way to go. It just, it just made perfect sense to me. 
Yeah. And so did you have to do a lot of educational work with customers and stuff in order to um, have people not doubting that it was, a, you know, if they're going to shell out money for a bike from this company that's right. relatively new with a process that's new, like, did you have to inspire people with confidence that they weren't buying a, a hunk of junk? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I am having to just think about what the experiences were. You know, we, um, we sold a lot of bikes back in those days because, uh, they, you know, we very quickly earned a great reputation and we would go to all these events, mm-hmm. um, where people could test ride our bikes and, and see that we were riding them hard and, uh, you know, got, it grew to the point where, um, I forget the years we started doing this, but this is long before like internet and, and, uh, mm-hmm. texting and that kind of thing. And, um, there'd be some event and we'd call up, uh, all these people that owned our bikes and say, okay, we're going to show up at this event. Make sure you bring your fat. And, uh, we'd call it a fat attack. And, uh, we'd go to these events, you know, even up to like 85 where like half the bikes at the event would be a fat chance. That's awesome. So, yeah. And this is of course just New England, but, um, you know, there's a lot of word of mouth and, and we built a great product and people were, were excited to, to go for it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. we were, yeah, we were just responding, uh, to what we felt was right. I think there was a lot of that, just like, you know, my experience plus, you know, the testing plus being out there riding, um, uh, we didn't get a lot of questions about that. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, at, at, yeah, yeah. I, what- I think that, we must've talked to, you know, we, we work through dealers mostly and we, I'm sure we talked to dealers about TIG welding and just explained to them our reasoning and what, uh, what was working about it and our testing. And, and, um, you know, I guess the only thing that, uh, <clears throat> that we had to do an add on, uh, was we did find, um, I can't remember what year we did this. We started adding a down tube gusset at the head tube down tube joint. Mm-hmm because we were, we did get some bikes breaking there. And so, um, we, I remember we built some bikes, uh, built three bikes for John Tumac who was racing for Mongoose and he kept breaking bikes that Mongoose was providing him. So, um, Mongoose called me up and said, you know, would you build some bikes and we'll put Mongoose stickers on them. Um, <laughs> but of course they looked, they looked like a, city bike with the, the domes on the end of the stage and non-tapering stage. Uh-huh. Um, I remember him saying, yeah, I couldn't break that bike, but eventually I, I did. And, and that was um, right around when we were starting to, right after we built his bikes, I think we started putting on the down tube gussets. And so, you know, he's, he's a really good rider. Um, and we built a really strong bike, but uh, I was disappointed that we built him something that he could break. But had we had the down tube gussets on it, uh, I think he never would have broke it. Mm-hmm. But he just missed that by a short period of time. Yeah. Anyways, that was fun, fun building bikes for John Tomac. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, when you when you're yeah, yeah that profile of company in that area, you're gonna have big names riding riding the stuff yeah. you make. Yeah. The the reason that I was yeah. talking about TIG welding and public perception some was just when I had Carl Strong on this show, he was talking about mm-hmm. uh being a building a lot of road bikes through the early and mid nineties and using TIG welding primarily. He said that there, mm-hmm. for his customer base, there was this perception that like TIG welding was not going to work or would, is not going to produce a quality mm-hmm. road bike or something. And so he had a lot of work that yeah. he had to do to like sort of educate customers about 
the, the technical differences. And so I, I would assume whenever you bring, mm-hmm. you know, like you did it even a decade earlier, but maybe part of the difference is that when you're bringing mm-hmm. a mountain bike to the market, which is a relatively new thing in general, maybe people are less, you know, they, they would see a road bike now with TIG welding and they say, wait a minute, road bikes always have lugs. What's this, what's this business? But then they see right. a new, new class of bike altogether. Yeah. They're less skeptical maybe. Yeah. Well, we, I think we had kind of a leg up there in that um, when we introduced the slim, we'd been building uh, some, you know, pretty thin walled, uh, what was it called? The tangy prestige tubing. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, those are road bike wall thicknesses on those tubes. And we built some mountain bikes. Uh, you know, that's what the tubing was intended for uh, yeah. that we bought. Uh, and we were TIG welding that and they were holding up great. And so we said, well, we should be doing a road bike TIG weld. Yeah. And course, as far yeah. as I know, we were the first company in the U.S. to do a road bike TIG weld. Like it was, wow. it was a big deal. What year was when that? When we went to the show with it. Oh gosh, I'm not sure. Um, what year was that? You know, it's something I need to know, and I'm, <laughs> I'm. That's a long time ago. It would have yeah. been, I think, the early '90s. Mm-hmm. I don't. It might have been as early as 89, yeah. but I don't think so. Yeah. I'm not sure. I really don't know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, we did a lot of explaining to people, especially, I mean, with mountain bikes, it, there wasn't that much explaining. You know, we mm-hmm. just say, look, you know, this is the way all these BMX bikes are built. Yeah. And those things get ridden hard and go out and have fun. Yeah. Don't worry about it. And, you know, just follow us because we're having a great time. So uh, with a road bike, yeah, there was a lot more conservative feeling in the market. And, um, you know, now it's, it's like the most normal thing, but yeah, it is. Uh, people were just, you know, and road bikes are kind of conservative. And that was one reason why I really enjoyed getting into mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. Everything was new and we new were exploring. And, yeah. And uh, so coming back to road bikes, was really fun for me in that it was, I was coming full circle. I took all this expertise that I gained in, you know, doing all this production work, building bikes uh, for Fat City mm-hmm. and um, all my expertise of when I started doing road bikes and brought them together into the Slim Chance. And, and that was that was really fun for me. Yeah. Was that ever a big but seller the, for yeah, Fat City yeah. to sell the Slim Chance? It never was. We, um, you know, we're really successful as a mountain bike company. And um, I think the Slim Chance is a well-respected bike. But uh, we never really had the focus in the road market that yeah. uh, the bike needed. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, we did do um, uh, Mavic tech support. We built 10 bikes for them one year. And uh, we got some rave reviews on those bikes. Mm-hmm. We got uh, stories like, um, <clears throat> you know, professional riders, right, that were racing in the U.S., Mm-hmm. would have a flat and so they'd give them a slim chance to ride while they fix the flat and say okay we got here you know the guys would be back on, on in the race you say we fixed your flat you're ready for to swap back to your regular bike and they go oh, no this bike's riding fine you know i don't want to give it up uh-huh. and uh they really uh appreciated those bikes you know yeah. professional riders and and um even you know some bigger names that were like told about the bikes came by like after a race said, Oh, I heard about these bikes. Can I take one for a test ride? And, and, um, and they say, wow, that's a good bike. So that was really gratifying to hear. And we were doing something right. I mean, even to this day, well, I guess, you know what, three years ago now, uh, we got a review 
with a <clears throat> with the updated Yoetti road fork, <clears throat> which is you know same kind of five tube look, but uh, much smaller struts, overlined struts that join the fork legs and fork blades and uh, steerer, mm-hmm. and it makes a super light, really nice feeling fork that's not you know like your carbon forks are you know designed to be light and strong enough and um, they don't always have the, the ride feel that I like. And yeah. uh, steel's really good for that. Yep. And so the fork we're making is, is as light as you're ever going to get in steel. And, and, um, and it's got that steel feel, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a little more resilient, a little more absorbing. Does a uh, shock. And anyways, yeah. I just want to finish this comment that, um, uh, Matt Phillips at uh, bicycling magazine in his reviews said it's one of the n- nicest bikes he's ever ridden. That's great. That was really gratifying. Yeah. Yeah, that's so yeah. cool to get the. I don't. For me, I always get tickled when you know other people have nice things to say about my stuff. But you're at a scale where mm-hmm. the the number of people who ride now and have ridden your stuff uh, is massive, yeah. you know. And so there's always going to be yeah. these different connections in the industry, and uh, to to feel like you've yeah. you've contributed something to the community that other yeah. people yeah. Uh, appreciate or can benefit from, or to get feedback from people, it's just it's cool to be a part of the the larger scene and connected. Yeah, it's super cool. I'm, I'm so grateful for that. It's, it's, um, yeah, just an awesome feeling to have so many fans. I went to the, uh, the NABS, you know, North American handbuilt bike show in, um, what was it? 2012. Um, most of the way through my hiatus and, uh, it was like a homecoming. There's just so many people that were happy to see me. Where have you been? And, um, <laughs> just so many builders said, Oh, you had such an influence on me and yeah. it just really felt great. I was yeah. going to ask you about, so does Chris Eigelhart make your segmented forks these days? Uh, he's still making uh, our road forks, yeah. Um, he's That's... more set up than that than we are. I've, I've yeah. been in a, <clears throat> a big crunch getting a, my new shop set up to, to build everything, and he's still doing the road forks, but I'm doing the mountain bike forks now. Yeah, and so uh, Chris Eigelhart, was he an employee of yours way back? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, that's fact, another. Th- there's Chris, all these people yeah. who have worked for Fat City and worked yeah. with you, who have gone on to do so many other things, and we need to talk about the legacy yeah. of that to some degree. But I didn't mean to cut you off with what you're yeah. saying. Um, yeah, that's okay. So, yeah, at one point, um, when we were still in uh, Massachusetts, there was something like 25 companies that had been started by people that had worked for. Um, 25 companies in the bicycle business yeah. uh, by people that had worked for me and worked for Fat City. And, and um, yeah, we had kind of That's a amazing. reputation for being not, so, yeah, not so much an incubator, but a, like a launch pad for people to get into that. And, I, you know, I think at least part of that would be that I was um, doing my best to be inspiring to people to, to build the best bikes possible. You know, we were really focused on, when we come into work, we're going to do the best we can to make these bikes awesome as, as possible. <clears throat> yeah. And, um, you know, I think, I think that just kind of spurred people on to say, well, what can I do? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause, and they did. <laughs> Cause I know I'm going to list a couple that I know of off the top of my head and I know you'd, you'd be more familiar, but, 
Uh, so mm-hmm. Jeff Buchholz, who does Sputnik Tool, worked for you yep. for for a number of years. I know uh, the yeah. folks who went on to start Seven Cycles and the folks who went on to start IndieFab yeah. had worked for you. Gary yeah. Halfrich, who uh, taught the mm-hmm. Titanium courses at UBI for a really long time, and yeah. he uh, he started yeah. Merlin, right? Yes, and yeah. he he had yeah, worked for you. The three guys that started Merlin had worked with me. Yeah, there's just uh, there's Chris Eigelhart who uh, builds yeah. a lot of bikes for other people. I think does his own work and also does a lot of segmented forks. Um, yeah. He, yeah, he started working for you, Ron Andrews, who does King Cage, who makes yeah. the titanium lightweight yeah. water bottle cages. There's just so many mm-hmm. folks uh, who are in and around the bike industry who uh, were working in Fast City. And there's a really cool project somebody did a couple of years ago to make sort of a roadmap of you and Peter Weigel yeah. and Richard Sachs, all three starting at Whitcomb USA, and then the different companies yeah. that branched out from there. Uh, yeah. It's kind of incredible, but a lot of them started at Fat City. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing to me. What's the name of that, that website I wanna? Uh, I'll, uh, um, I'll link it when I post ang- the ang- podcast. Okay, Angles and Poise is what I remember. Angles and Poise, okay. Yeah, I'll make sure I link it on my website it. on the page for this podcast, and uh, if nothing else. But yeah, okay. it's, it's a really cool visualization because I think the whole yeah. bike world is like that to some degree, but it's especially mm-hmm. uh, Boston was just such a hotbed for cycling for so long. And we still have Firefly yeah. and Seven Cycles and a couple uh, yep. there, but uh, it was really huge through the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that must feel yeah. cool because I think so many of those folks are doing such cool and interesting work, and uh, you mm-hmm. know to have been a part of that. I mean, that's you know I think it's it's a human thing to want to have a positive impact on the world, and I would say that's a pretty yeah. big impact to like to have uh, you know nurtured and connected and maybe inspired people to go on to do other things that are really cool. Yeah, I again I just feel like such a lucky guy. You know, I'm, I'm, I've just done what, where my passion has guided me and, you know, followed it through as best I can. And, and, um, you know, a lot of really great things happen from that. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I feel honored to have you on the show here. So thanks for making the time to be on the show. Thank you. I wanted to ask you another thing, which is something I bring up with anybody who's been building since like before 2005, uh, and you've been building since Mm -hmm. way before 2005, which is. You know, when I got into it, so I took a class with this guy, Doug Faddock, um, and it was very mm-hmm. old school and it was lugged and we didn't use bike CAD in that class, but I've never built another mm-hmm. bike without using bike CAD. <clears throat> and I love that software mm-hmm. and I recommend it to everybody. Yeah. Uh, but you know, like yeah. if you didn't have it, uh, you could use other CAD software if you had that, or you could actually do a paper drawing or you could, you know, have like a, you could do some trigonometry and you could make a spreadsheet mm-hmm. or there's, there's different ways. And I'm sure you, you've, you've tried a number of these different things, but like, how is it that you could uh, effectively and maybe efficiently do the design work for these bikes, you know, way before, I mean, did yeah. you even use a computer or a, a scientific calculator or how actually, are you? Yeah, it's <clears throat> a great question. I, um, I, uh, when I first started Chris Chant Cycles, one of the early on things I did was went out and bought one of these Hewlett Packard um, programmable calculators, you know, cost me like 400 bucks or something. But <laughs> I spent, you know, I didn't know anything about, I didn't really remember trigonometry from high school. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know anything about computers, but I spent a couple of weeks programming it so that um, it would tell me what the wheelbase was and what the front center distance was, you know, do I have toe clip clearance? back in the days when we used toe clips. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and um, you know what the miter angles were, and uh, it, it allowed me to help refine my designs uh, to you know plug in the variables and um, and have it spit out the numbers, and uh, it was a great means for me to. Um, you know, play with geometry and, and see what the results were. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I've always been a big believer in using computers for that. And so I used that for a number of years. And then, um, what in 84, I started using, um, spreadsheets mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, translated that trigonometry I had in the, in the calculator, uh, into, um, a spreadsheet and, you know, that, that really gives you a lot of options for making it easier. You can change, you know, tube diameters and tire diameters really easily. And, and, uh, and I, I just got really comfortable with, okay, what are the numbers? You know, uh, you don't get to see the visual like you do with bike CAD or, or with regular CAD, but, uh, I just got real comfortable with, um, with these spreadsheets. That's what we used in at fat city, uh, mm-hmm. was, um, just a, a spreadsheet printout and, you know, told us how to set up the jig, where the bottom of the head tube was, and um, all those kind of coordinates to, to efficiently set up your fixtures. Mm-hmm. So that, that worked great for me. And, and, uh, and then in the <clears throat> mid-90s, I started using um, a CAD program called CADKey, uh, which was an inexpensive, um, not really the best management. They're not, uh, they were actually the first 3D CAD for Windows, I think. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, and so they they had a, an early start, but had some management issues, and um, I think missed the opportunity to be uh, uh, continue being a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the software that I'm used to using, and it's it's quite powerful. Uh, I use uh, I got really good at doing 3D modeling, and and um, so I use that for bike design. Uh, you know, to check out my crank and tire clearances. Still, I do that. Yeah, and um, and you know, do 3D models of frames and see how they all come together and how they look. Yeah. And, I think uh, that's really, and I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a lot cool. Of jigging, just... uh, jig design with it too, which is super mm-hmm. helpful. I used to have to do all that kind of stuff in my head and, yeah. you know, I got, got pretty good at it, but it's not, not as good as being able to just, you know, really get it dialed in and kick 3d CAD. Yeah. So yeah. you're and now I do use CAD key. I just want to, you know, put a plug in for Kagi. It's an awesome program. It's just oh, cool. really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, it's funny. I haven't actually I, heard of that. Yeah. I'm going to definitely look into that. I use a uh, fusion mm-hmm. 360, which is like essentially free to people learning to use it and who are not using it in a business capacity. I think it's pretty much free mm-hmm. uh, and it's pretty powerful mm-hmm. and I've enjoyed using that. But now of course uh, I, mm-hmm. I think I, my days of using it for free are up, but um uh, uh, but it's it's quite uh-huh. powerful and, and cool software, especially for CNC manufacturing, yeah. because it has an integrated uh-huh. CAM package that comes with the CAD oh, package, cool. so you can program your machine from the same software. But. So it's it's 3D CAD that you're doing with yeah. it? Yeah, it's 3D, and it's all parametric, cool. so you can, you can build a whole uh-huh. complicated model uh-huh. and then go back to the first sketch and change some dimension, and everything else yeah. around it will adjust accordingly, which is cool. absolutely necessary. I think if you're going to spend time doing CAD, you got to work with parametric. Mm-hmm. It's the only way to ha- harness the power of it. Mm. Um, cool. I was going to ask you about, so nowadays, uh, you know, you started 
uh, Fat Chance Bikes again. So where in the 80s, it was Fat City Cycles, yeah. and uh, I think now it's, right. it's Fat Chance Bikes. Uh, Fat Chance. That's so, correct, yeah. Yeah, so you took a hiatus from the bike world, which I think is understandable after working for decades in bikes. I think it... Yeah, yeah. The bike industry has a tendency to burn out just about everybody, uh, it, regardless of how yeah. passionate you are. Uh, what what was what has yeah. it been like to come back, and what was that break like? And I, I'm curious to hear some of those yeah. things. Yeah, you know, uh, the bike business, you know, for me, and I'm sure many others, is just immersive, right? It's like all your friends are into bikes. And of course, you know, my business was consuming and, and I was just thinking about bikes all the time and loving bikes, but um, just feeling like, God, there must be something else out there in the world besides bikes. And I've been doing this a long time. And, and um, it was just time to, to uh, see what else, you know, experience was going to offer me here. And, and, um, and I was glad I did, you know, it's really, um, I've gotten very into personal development and personal growth and um, meditating and looking inside and just seeing what's going on that I can clear out. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, life can be a journey that gets um, pretty expansive. And uh, I got into, um, you know, I, I, I want to say I started out uh, always loving to work with my hands and I, I like to connect and, and with people and, and help them out and, uh, I became a body worker. I uh, studied shiatsu and um, and a lot of other different modalities, uh, and became a resource for people that were um, kind of stuck in their healing path and um, having body issues that were uh, difficult for them to deal with, and was able to um, really help people a lot with it. It was extremely gratifying work, and um, that sounds I like had, a, had a really good following. Yeah, yeah, I had a really good following and and earned a lot of respect in uh, in uh, you know in a local way, um, not not as uh, much of an impact as with bicycles, but uh, that that my ability to listen and to tune into what what people needed uh, to to move through what they were kind of stuck with, uh, really really was helpful, mm -hmm. and uh, I was glad to to apply myself to that, but then you know, I, I just kind of got to the point of like, well, there's all these people asking me to come back to building bikes and I wonder what that'll be like. And, uh, I just got to this place of like, well, I don't want to grow old and, and not know. I want to, mm -hmm. want to die back in and, and do it again. I, I, uh, I got interviewed by this woman who was doing her PhD on the culture and history of mountain biking oh, at cool. UC Davis. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that'll be interesting. I, uh, hadn't thought about that stuff in a while <laughs> and I got into the interview and, and parts of my brain I hadn't used in a long time were just lit up and I realized how excited I was for a lot of this stuff and and um, and that happened in a few articles that I read that were you know where's he now kind of stuff where people were um, were interviewing me just kind of wondering what's going on and uh, yeah I just uh, I just kept bumping into people said so when are you going to do it again and so I went for it. That's awesome. I'm glad I did. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I think it's really cool to see you at the trade shows and to see the the rebirth mm. of the the Fat Chance brand. It's exciting to see the modern offerings and the way that it, it's like so congruent with uh, the the brand that you had, you know, for decades mm -hmm. prior. Uh, yeah. And but it's yeah. like it's not. I think the thing with um, particularly mountain bike nostalgia is that uh, it's. I totally understand nostalgia and I am very nostalgic about 
objects from the past, you know, like cameras and guitars mm-hmm. and bikes and different things and cars and whatever. Sure. But like mountain yeah. bike technology is just such a rapidly evolving thing that um, yeah. if you really like mountain biking and you want to enjoy your time on it, you probably do want to be on a new bike that's, you know, safer and that you can, mm-hmm. you can ride more aggressively yeah. and, and, you know, more suspension, yeah. better brakes. And so it's kind of hard to love these old bikes and ride them when the newer <laughs> ones just objectively perform a lot better. And so it's cool to see the way that with Fat City or Fat Chance Bikes, you're, you're bringing yeah. back a lot of those things that were signature and really cool about those bikes uh but then in a modern context uh yeah 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 it's interesting you know because i'm uh i am building you know a significant number of uh single speed um rigid forked yoetis you know the people that just want simple stripped down no muss no fuss bikes Mm -hmm. to go out and ride and and uh yeah you know those guys are hardcore going out mountain biking on a single speed is (laughs) that's a that's yeah that's quite an attitude yeah so yeah and you're building yeah, all, all respect of for that you're building all the mountain bikes mm-hmm. yourself in your own shop right yeah mountain bikes road bikes cross bikes yeah okay you're doing all the yeah, frames because in the when you first yeah. launched there was a period where you had some of the frames were contract manufactured right yeah when i when i first started i was like well you know you look at the magazines and like all the bikes in there are carbon fiber and mm-hmm. yes uh steel is having a, a bit of a resurgence but you know, the investment of setting up a shop to build frames is, is huge. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to make sure that, uh, the interest in steel was going to be around and, um, that we're, you know, moving into a a market that, uh, was going to support us. And, uh, I suppose, you know, looking back, I I could have assumed that, but, uh, I wasn't ready to assume it. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, yeah, I, I worked with some contract builders and, uh, much of them, I was there on the floor, uh, you know, making sure the bikes got done right. And, and, um, it was, it was good, but, uh, you know, I just got to the point where I needed to, to get it all under one roof and my hands on it. So that's yeah. what I'm doing now. That's really cool though. Uh, I think, you know, when I talk to frame builders on this show and a lot of them are people who've been building for like, you know, 10 or 15 years or, or less even. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, I don't know, I, I think a lot of people would say that it's a, it's sort of a saturated market. There's a lot of frame builders mm-hmm. and a lot of people who yeah. see the frame building sort of lifestyle or whatever, but like they see that as a very romantic sort of thing. Like, you know, you're working with your hands, you're making something that you care about passionately to that, that someone yeah. else is going to be really, they're really going to love and enjoy this product. It's like a romantic idea. Yeah. And so there's a lot of people who want to do it and uh, differentiating yourself and, and these sorts of things can be a challenge. And then for someone like you, I feel like you really have a strong thing to sell on, which is that not only are you very good at making the bikes, you've done it a lot, you're good at listening to people, but then there's like this whole like incredibly powerful nostalgia factor that um, I think that's mm-hmm. a really compelling thing in life. Uh, but like, it's just yeah. for me, like I, when I was looking at your website, some to study for this, uh, like I want one of your bikes real bad, you know, like I, there's a lot of bikes that I want, but like, man, I would love to yeah. have a contemporary Yo Eddie mountain bike would mm. be freaking cool. It's just like, it's something about like, um, cool. uh, I don't know. I think, I think you have a unique uh, position in the industry because you are making them by hand in your own shop, but then you have this legacy yeah. of like nostalgia to sell on to. That's like really cool. Similarly, like, uh, I think Steve Potts and a couple of these 
you know, Richard mm-hmm. Sachs. There's a couple yeah. people who've been building for so long and they have such a reputation yep. that like, uh, that's just a really cool thing that you can still buy something made by hand uh, from someone who's been doing it for so long. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You got to sell on that. I'm sure it is you amazing, are. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just interesting to, uh, you know, I think about how, you know, I was young when I started, um, 82, I would have been like, uh, 28. And so, uh, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of gumption back then and, and, um, and I still have a lot of gumption and it's just really neat to build on it and, um, continue the story and see what unfolds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah, I love your work. I love the the design of them. Mm. Uh, I always, I'm always talking about how I love the single bend rear end. You know, to the extent it, functionally when it fits to just do a single bend per stay, uh, which is definitely yeah. like I think of the you know the Fat Chance bikes are absolutely what I'm thinking yeah. of when I think of that. And I like, I, I think partly you see this with titanium builders. They use straight gauge rear tubing just because. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't always tons of options for tapered uh, stays and ovalized mm-hmm. stays, but also it's just it's yep. the old fat chance bikes had the straight straight gauge stays, and I think they look freaking cool like that. It's like just yeah. as- aesthetically, as much as anything else, uh, yep. looks really cool. Yeah, thanks. I I, uh, I agree. Um, <laughs> I'm really happy with how they look. There's a I I had heard of the um, like a what was it like a postcard you guys made or a t-shirt or something at one point that said ride us and write us. Um, yeah. And I yeah. saw you mention that in a video or something, uh, when you're talking about, you know, the history of, of fat city, but, mm-hmm. uh, as sort of like a, a marketing message in one instance, but like that maybe speaks of the culture of your company, which is, you know, like yeah. trying to bring people into a brand that they can be excited about and trying to invite mm-hmm. people to like, I'm always doing that. I'm, you know, when I talk to people on Instagram or at a trade show or anywhere, you know, I'm like, well, you know, don't be a stranger. If you have questions about this, you know, shoot me an email or ask a question or, you know, at right. this point I have, I feel like I have time to, to answer people's questions and to be helpful. Or I always want to see the ways that when, when somebody buys a tool from me and then they put it to use, like, of course I want to see the projects mm-hmm. that you're making. Like, you know, like yeah. tell me about some, some weird or cool or special thing that you made because you bought the tube bender that you wouldn't have been able to make without it. Like, of course I want to hear about that. That's freaking cool. And I think that you were doing a similar thing, you know, by, I mean, it's funny, you know, ride us and ride us, but, um, but you know, like, uh, inviting people to like, to be part of the fat city family, like what else did you do in those years with like, um, did you like sponsor races or like, how did you make it a fun and exciting brand that people would want to be a part of? Yeah. Well, um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, letter writing back in those days before emails of, uh, responding to people that would write in and ask questions and, um, Wendell and people in the office would be, uh, responding to them with a lot of enthusiasm and, and, um, you know, just an invitation to keep the conversation going. And, uh, so that was really helpful. We did a, um, a catalog, uh, what, in 89, where we took uh, postcards that people sent us and stacked them up to this tall, skinny catalog. And um, so the front of the catalog had four postcards, the front of them, uh, and then on the inside was what people had written on the postcards. And then on the back of the brochure, we did um, sort of uh, parodies of the front postcards 
uh, and with perforations. So, uh, and then on the on the where you'd write side, there would be, you know, the address to. Well, actually, you could send it anywhere, but we were inviting people to to write us with these postcards, mm-hmm. actually on the on the catalog that you could tear out. That's awesome. And that was yeah, it was it was one of my more favorite catalogs that we did. Uh, and um, you know, of course, there's the Fat Cogs, the Fat Chance Owners Group, which um, inspired more communication. Uh, we're just always um, wanting to be accessible. You know, like, hey, we're just humans on the planet having fun. We want to have uh, more people have fun on our bikes. And, and so tell us your story. And, and um, it's just kind of a, you know, there's some companies that like to be snobby because they feel like that gets them something. And we like to be the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. We're just folks that love what we do and, and want to hear about your story. So, uh, uh, you know, the listening, the, the sharing of enthusiasm and um, and and you know what a great bike can do for your life yeah and and just wanting to hear people's stories about what their relationship is with a bike one of the stories that i uh really enjoyed on fat cogs was this guy who had been riding his wicket in colorado for i don't know 20 something years this is a few years ago he, he rode in um to fat cogs uh and he decided that he was getting older and his body wasn't like him as a full rigid frame and his body wasn't like him being beat up so much so he wanted to get a uh, full suspension bike and uh so he put his uh wicked fat chance on craigslist and got a bunch of responses really quickly so he took it off craigslist and then um rode into fat cogs and said am i missing something here you know i i, uh, I got this bike and i want to get a, a squishy bike and and um you know, I got all these responses, what's going on. And, and like seven or eight people wrote him back and said, do not sell that bike. You'll be kicking yourself if you sell it. <laughs> Just, you know, get the money, buy your new bike, but don't sell your old bike. Yeah. And he wrote back and said, thanks. I, thanks. I, I knew something was going on when people were writing me saying, well, sell me the bike because I'll be the best foster parent for it. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, it's more than a bike. It's like a hair, an heirloom piece or, yeah. a, you know, just something that's really, really valued. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah yeah it's really cool to see that stuff yeah that's gonna be amazing you know they're just uh not only did you yeah. make the things but like you made the things that people were really excited about that you know they're maybe working all day and waiting to get off work at right. the end of the day to go mountain biking yeah. and i think f- yeah. you know frame building in general is cool like that but i think like most of the people i've talked to have done it on a really smaller scale and so, you know, you had a bigger mm-hmm. company that affected, because well, yeah. I mean, how many frames were you guys selling every year? Or were, were you doing frames or complete bikes? Uh, in the early years, it was all complete bikes because you couldn't even get enough parts. You know, it was just so, so new. Uh, we had to sell complete bikes, you know, for the most part. And then um, over the years, it kind of tapered off as distribution, uh, like as the uh, the distributors got um, their own kits together to sell to dealers. Uh, they were buying higher volume than we could and we couldn't really compete. Mm-hmm. So then we, and starting in those years, we were selling mostly just frames. So, um, yeah, what was your question? <laughs> it was about, uh, about how many bikes you were selling. How many bikes? Years. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we were doing in the range of 1500, 1800 a year. Wow. And, uh, Adding them all up, there's something like 15,000 bikes that were built uh, at Fat City Cycles. Wow. So we had a lot of, a lot of people. 
yeah, that's a, a lot, lot of, of bikes. people that's, contributing. That's a lot of, uh, yeah. A lot, yeah, a lot of people out there. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We hear stories about what happened to him. This one guy who worked for a, uh, um, I don't know, recycling company or something was, uh, out in the field where they're, um, I don't know if it's what it was recycling or refuse or something, but from a distance, he saw a fat chance bike, you know, he recognized it and, and it was just as a bulldozer was heading, heading that way. And by the time he got over there, it would have been run over. Oh no. It was like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's the, that's, that's like a, a nightmare. Wake up every night. To this, <laughs> yeah. this image of the yeah, bulldozer just crushing it. <laughs> are you uh so i understand you're getting into titanium frames in your shop again also yeah yeah now, is this right. something that you, you've had your hands on titanium production before yeah we used to do a, a tie hat um it was it was uh kind of like a yoetti very much like a yoetti mm-hmm. um and there's a few really interesting things about it uh you know having been a steel tube designer for years i um had a lot of expertise in, in putting the metal where I wanted it for strength and stiffness. And, um, you know, wrote these formulas in a computer where I could compare stiffness of a tube. Um, you know, as I increase the diameter, what do I need to do to the wall thickness if I want to have it more or less stiff? Mm-hmm. So it's just really basic engineering. And so I made modifications to that um, so I could compare what the, the given stiffness of a steel tube is, what I want to need to do in titanium to equate that stiffness. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of titanium bikes, especially when I was starting doing this. Um, 93, I think we came out with our first titanium fat chance. And, um, you know, a lot of those titanium bikes, they, they were just super flexy. In fact, I had a, a, a Teledyne Titan back in 74 before I started working at Whitcomb. When I started mm-hmm. working at Whitcomb, I still had it. I had a, a titanium bike and I was always kind of partial to it. I, uh, I enjoyed riding the bike. It was very comfortable and, and would actually ride it in criteriums and, and like this feel of how coming into a corner, I could put on the front brake and the bike would kind of accordion in, you know, <laughs> and I keep my hand on the brake going through the corner and then release it coming out of the corner and the bike would have this feeling of springing forward. It was pretty cool. Wow. But, uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I brought all this, uh, tube design expertise into titanium with a fat chance and, and uh, made a bike that rode how I wanted it to, not like a flexible flyer. And uh, so I think that was something that was really unique at the time. Um, and there's more stories about that, but uh, we just, we did, you know, again, all we could with a bike to how can we put something together that's really, you know, unique and special here. <clears throat> and so uh, we, we sold quite a few of those. It wasn't, you know, it's a lot more expensive and it's, um, it, we were so well known for the Yoetti. I think that's just what we kept selling mm-hmm. mostly. Uh, but, um, there's a lot of interest in the, in the latest version. I'm really excited about it. So you'll be releasing some titanium frames, uh, that you'll be producing in your shop, uh, yeah. the Yoetti or which models? Yeah. So, um, we're calling the uh, the new titanium bike the the titanium Yoetti, Tiny Yoetti, mm-hmm. and uh, so we're doing the Yoetti. We're doing uh, the Slim Chance. We're doing the Crisscross, which is our gravel racer cross bike, mm-hmm. uh, and, and um, we're also doing a uh, enduro bike, the Wicked Fat Chance, mm-hmm. which has a like a sixty five degree head angle and takes a you know real long travel fork. That's awesome. It's it's a, yeah it's a hard tail, but it's it's a way fun ride. Yeah, yeah. 
that's so cool. Man, I'm excited for all the stuff you got going. You were telling me when I saw you at the Philly Thank Bike you. Expo that you had just, uh, in the last year or something, you had gotten a bunch of tools from uh, Jeff at Sputnik, a frame fixture and a fork yeah. fixture and some other stuff. Uh, and that's part yeah. of the process that you've been going through of tooling up your own shop again. What does your shop look like these yeah. days? Do you have a lot of machines and a lot of space or is it is it modest or? Uh, uh, it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's, pretty well tooled um i'd like to have some more machine tools um you know i have uh i rented uh, a space from a company that has a lathe i can use which is great um but i, I it's it's kind of modest but i have what i need to build a great bike mm-hmm. um and it's it's you know right now it's um the corner of a much larger space that i can expand into oh that's great yeah, when I talked yeah. to Carl Strong about tools and shops and stuff, he was saying something, you know, he's got like a two or so car garage with a couple bridge ports and specialized machines. And he said if he had to start mm-hmm. over again tomorrow, you know, he, he, he knows exactly what he would need and that he wouldn't need even as yeah. much as he has. And I think that's the thing is that mm. if you have um, just the right tools for every little job can be nice, but the more experience, like, you know, you can buy tools, you can't yeah. buy experience. And the more experience you get, right. maybe the more you realize what you need and what you don't. And so, you know, you've done this yeah. so much for so long that I'm sure that really informs your, your process of uh, getting established. You know that you do need some things dearly. Yeah and other things uh maybe not so important or yeah 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 it's like that (laughs) or like uh (laughs) again in in a different conversation i had on this show uh someone was talking about you know sometimes a tool can be really helpful for something but if you have enough experience you can get it with a hand file even faster and so uh you know not everything needs a, a fancy setup yeah that's that's true sometimes i mean uh you know, there's there's fancy tools you can get that will miter a down tube to a tapering head tube. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I find that using a hole saw that, that takes in the, the um, like, say, the two diameters, the exit diameter and the, the beginning mm-hmm. diameter, and then, um, yeah, and then just adjusting with a file is, is quite quick. Yeah. Well, for someone who has yeah. the, the experience and knows what they're looking for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm. I have a lot of filing experience, <laughs> put a lot of grease through these elbows. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Me and files get along just fine. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, that's yeah. great. Uh, well, I think. I mean, that's most of the questions I had on the list. Um, for okay, I'm. I'm really excited to see where you go with uh, Fat Chance bikes in the coming years. It's already off to a cool start, mm-hmm. and it's really cool to yeah. see. Uh, you know that you're producing them yourself too because um it's so easy like i think you have a really marketable thing which is you know your brand and your name and the nostalgia of what you had done and it would be easy enough Mm -hmm. for you to just have them produced elsewhere and focus on the big picture of running the business which of course is a job in itself you know marketing and selling and 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 customer work but uh that you're also making them i feel like makes it extra special and uh so i don't know i think that's really cool you see not many people who've been doing it as long as you who are still producing a product Mm -hmm. for the for the end consumer i think that's really really special i'm I'm excited to see uh where it goes in the future yeah i just want to put a little shout out to my very patient customers because i am wearing all these different hats you know being the builder and uh, office manager and uh trying to respond to people on email and yeah uh not not getting bikes out the door as quickly as i would like so i'm grateful for their patience and uh 
you know, wish I was able to communicate more, but um, we're getting there. Is this a, the, the way that you're running it these days? Is it mostly just a, like a sort of one man band or do you have uh, assistance for, for many I've, steps? Uh, I've, yeah, I have, I have some assistance and um, uh, looking to get some more. Cool. Very yeah. cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, I look forward to, to yeah. seeing you uh, at more shows and, and talking more. That sounds great, Joe. Thanks for uh, taking your time to hear yeah. my stories. Yep. Appreciate it. Yep. Bye.